Hello again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a not-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. According to the latest National Survey on Drug Use and Health, a project of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in Washington, over 7 million adult women have a substance use disorder, over 7.3 million have a serious mental illness, and 4.4 million have co-occurring substance use disorders and mental illness. Even with these significant numbers, the treatment and recovery system is just beginning to scratch the surface of addressing the particular needs of women. While recognizing that no two individuals are exactly alike and all specific needs will vary, there are some research-based recurring themes that are specific to effectively guiding women into and through the recovery process. Today's podcast is the first in our three-part series with our guest, Tanisha Grant, Director of Women's Services at Community Renewal Team in Hartford. CRT was established in 1962, and in 1964 was designated as one of the first community action partners by the administration of Lyndon Johnson as part of his Great Society plan. Our focus today is on the woman's journey into recovery. Tanisha Grant is a Hartford native that has spent the past 20 years providing services to individuals with intellectual disabilities, substance use, mental health disorders, formerly incarcerated, experiencing homeless, veterans, women, and families that may or may not have involvement with the Department of Children and Families. She is certified to facilitate Circle of Security parenting training and is also certified PREA and recovery coach trainer. She is on the board of directors for Journey Home, a member of the Greater Hartford Coordinated Access Network. Ms. Grant is also a member of the NAACP and a subcommittee on women, double, uh, NAACP. She serves as diversity champion for Simsbury Spirit Council. Ms. Grant has a passion for working with women and families. She has the pleasure of living her life's purpose by working as a director of women's services for the community renewal team as a family support specialist for My People Clinical Service. She also serves as the board on the board of directors of the CCB. Her goal in life is to empower as many women as she can to find their purpose in life so that each decision she makes is done with the intention to reach self-actualization and thrive. Welcome to the show, Tanisha. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. Let's start out with really kind of an overarching question that we can discuss further. And when we talk about unique needs of women, um, what are some of those things that we talk about? So some of the unique needs of women are pretty much just to understand how we function um, as a human being. Right. So we have we have different roles in terms of. where we are in society. So we can be um, a mom, a daughter. Um, also, um, you could also be, let's see, how, how could I put it? A caregiver um, with whatever role you're doing at work. So so nine times out of 10, that's, that's predominantly what women, women are, caregivers, right? And so our needs are different from men in that we have to take care of others and we're not able to 
successfully be able to separate the two in terms of when it comes time for, for recovery. So if we need to go into treatment, let's say, we have to worry about who's going to take care of the children, who's going to take care of your husband. Um, if you're a single mom, who's going to provide for your family financially so that everybody is, is okay. If you're caring for an elder parent, um, who's going to take care of that individual if you're the only person that's doing it? So those that's, that's, that's one um, need that I see that we need to focus on in terms of treatment and be able to understand um, how women's roles as, as caregivers. Um, another need in terms of women is like in terms of economics, right? So we don't make as much money as men and our access to to health is not the same as it is for as the same as it is for for men as well especially women that are living in poverty which you would see that most of the women that um do ha- that are in recovery um have experienced some type of trauma in their life um they may also be in po- living in poverty or in impoverished neighborhoods and things like that so there's an economic piece that plays a part in women's needs with regards to recovery. Um, let's see if I was to say what is the biggest need is for people to understand the stigma and trauma that's placed on women when they're, um, when they're in recovery Mm -hmm. and having programs that understand that, um, and also are willing to employ folks that are specialized in dealing with women's issues. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the trauma and the stigma because those are part two and three of our three-part series that we'll get into right. um, much more deeply because I think that they, they're they worthy of more than just a passing mention. And, and I wanted just to say that so our folks realize that we're going to touch on that very, very specifically. Mm-hmm. In my years of working uh, clinically, I remember in the early 90s, uh, working in an IOP day treatment program, and the women that were referred, many couldn't attend. And they were always stated that they didn't want to get better, that they didn't want to put the effort in, and nobody really looked at the, the reality of the situation and who's going to take care of my children. That was just an obvious thing that, that was missed, um, and I'm glad that we're you know, that we have to address that. I still think that we've got a long way to go with that. Um, but you mentioning the economic, um, I think it, it people don't realize that even for uh, women that are gainfully employed, they earn less than men do. The research shows that we've got facts that, that it's, and I don't know the exact number, 60 cents on the dollar or something that effect, but um, that also affects the ability to, uh, pay for childcare, to pay co-pays for treatment um, if they're insured. I think so. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's it, these are things that often get missed because the treatment system had been designed to treat men. Right. And, and, and that's, and that's true. And then we, and then when we, when we have them going to treatment, whether they're, whether they're mandated to go or they're doing it because they, they, they want to make changes in their lives on their, their own the curriculums and program designs are set up for men, really. Now, can a female 
um, go into the IOP group or go into treatment and successfully complete it? Of, of course they can, but the outcomes of them retaining or maintaining sobriety once they finish the treatment um, isn't as high as it is for women that are in gender-specific treatment. And we also see that when women are in mixed gender groups, there isn't that as much um, participation in them because it's it's hard to trust your count of the, the other members that are in the um, in the group with you. Um, in addition to, they may not relate to you on the same type of level because they don't have the same type of needs that you have um, or the same concerns that you have. So a, a male can just get up and go to his group um, or go into treatment without having to worry about who's going to take care of the children or the, or just the household, household things, um, in general. Um, so just being able to design or build something that specifically where women are able to bond and connect with each other on a different level with regards to recovery and have that relatedness is very important. Um, you can see I'm smiling when you said that, because as I was preparing to talk to you, I went back to something that I learned and, and that was uh, uh, brought to us in social work school back in the mid nineties, when you had earlier mentioned about how women act in, in group situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, a, a social work researcher from Wellesley college named Linda Yale Schiller, who talked and looked at there's, there are some common themes in how groups develop and what stages they go through. And one of the first things that they that groups will go through our power and control stages. And generally men in a group situation to express their power will be forwardly uh, assertive, if not aggressive towards right. each other to say, this is my place. But what Ms. Schiller discovered was something that you just said, women are much more relational. Women express power by forming kind of bonds and alliances with the other women. So it's a shared power. Their power is in their ability to be relational. Um, and I thought that fascinating, and I wasn't sure if I was going to bring that up, but you kind of went right to it. And she developed kind of a, a theory of when you put women in gender-specific groups, kind of the stages that the group goes through and what it looks like, and it creates a much better explanation of, of how women relate to each other in the treatment environment. Um, and a part of that is less of the stigma because many of them are in the same situation. But I just find that fascinating, and it's often lost, because like you said, the treatment system is designed often by men for men. Right, unfortunately. Um, But there is hope. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There there, there is hope yet, because um, I think that everyone is starting to understand the different unique needs of, of women, and how important it is to have gender specific programming for them and especially in terms of outcomes and like i said you can it's in the it's in the research that they tend to do better um in, in gender specific programs and so in the the relational piece in i, I would say we can even go a step further because you can have in the group once they've all once it's right like really um, 
informed and everyone is participating, like they ask each other insightful questions about topics that, that they maybe have brought up in group, right? To help the other parties, other women participants be able to say, you know, hey, I didn't even think of it like that. Um, and then being able to say, yeah, you know what? I agree with you. And this happened to me as well. So being able to bounce things off of one another and not be scared or ashamed or feel guilty about saying certain things in a group goes goes to show how how important that is for women to be able to um, to be successful on their journey. We've talked for years in this field about um, being able to meet people where they're at, and it's a struggle for many uh, for many programs because if this is the program, this is what you do. But I think you see better numbers, even the things that. Uh, agencies that have gender-specific programming, their attendance is better, outcomes are better, um, because it's a much friendlier and more welcoming environment instead of saying, you're this person and you're the same as everybody else and you have to do A, B, C, and D. Now, there may be some conditions that everybody's got to do, but how you go about that and how you get those things met is really important. We're starting to turn the corner. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a little slow. <laughs> we're starting to turn a corner and that's important. Um, given those specific needs, and you had mentioned it, why specifically is gender specific programming important? What are some of the, you talked about outcomes. Right. Um, just in general of how she feels about herself as a person. I'm going to give an example. When I was working at Mercy Housing and Shelter, years ago. Um, we had uh, one of our programs there um, is the women's 90 day um, residential program. And so my supervisor at the time was get a job, get a job, get a job, get a job, get a job so they can get housed. Right. That's, that was his main focus. And so he couldn't understand why the types of groups I was running for the women, um, why that was important. Like, what does it mean to look good? How do you how do you feel about yourself? Those kinds of things. And and I had to explain to him if for, for anyone, if you're feeling good, if you're looking good on the outside, it's gonna help you to feel good on the inside. And vice versa. And that's why we have to, to start there with how they feel about themselves and building up, building them up because they've been, they've been through so much. Um, and again, I know you said we're, we're going to talk about trauma and stuff um, mm-hmm. at our next session, but uh, there's a, a high prevalence of trauma in these women. And so it's almost like starting, starting from scratch with them and getting them to feel, to feel better about themselves. So it just, it just goes to so, show that there's, there's something in that ability to build you back, build you back up. And, so and that we you know can... that anybody that comes into uh, treatment and recovery, body image may be an issue for mm-hmm. anybody, but it's magnified um, in women because of popular culture and all the pressures on the outside pushing against uh, them. So I think that uh, 
it, it makes sense what you're saying because you if you're feeling you're looking better you're being more comfortable with yourself you're addressing those issues of, of body image and things maybe when you're in in treatment it's going to help you in the in the work world and seeking employment, you know, finding employment because you're comfortable with yourself and it carries over. And not, not only that, then you start, as you start to feel better about your appearances, then you start to be able to speak out more about things and advocate for yourself. Right. So things that you have tolerated, would have tolerated, um, years, months ago, you're starting to be able to say, no, you know what? I deserve better. I don't deserve to be talked like that. I don't talk to like that. I don't deserve to be treated in the way that I'm treated. And, oh, yes, I am smart. I do have skills. I can go apply for this job or I can go back to the, um, back to school or I am a great mom. There's just some things that happened to me and I just have to get myself back back um, back together again. Yeah, the things that... that uh, the women here over the years before uh, that wear them down and, and before they can kind of start turning it around. You've got to deal with those issues uh, mm-hmm. and come to grips with those before you can turn it around. Um, and and but- there's the other, the other piece too, is that women have more chronic pain than men do. Right. We, we, we see that. So of course, quite naturally we're prescribed um, pain medication for our our chronic pain and it can become addictive to us and we're prescribed it at rates that are higher at doses that are higher than they would be for a male based on how our body metabolizes things so women getting drawn into addiction from prescribed from prescribed medication we have to um and nothing against pres- prescribers or anything, because you, I guess you're doing what you what you feel is right, and you evaluated all the risks and everything for for women, but just or just for your for your patient in general. But just to realize that that's how it can get um, can get started as as well, um, and then the increase of women that are inside of um, that are going back into the workforce now that are dealing with the stresses of work. So they drink, they tend to drink a lot more and getting up and starting to drink is just as much as their male counterparts. So taking into account all of those different, um, those different things, is just, it's just very important. And I had read some time ago somewhere and, and I can't remember specifics, but it did point out that many uh, women that had substance use disorders were using or were involved with the same substances or alcohol that their partners were in. And oftentimes their partners use that as a method of control uh, for it. And it, it makes perfect sense. You can hear the dog barking. Um, but it's also horrifying to think about um, it, that, um, you know, the depths that people will go for control. But, I, I, but when you talk about medication, I didn't know that. And so to me, that's fascinating. I didn't know about the rates of medication and things like that um, for women. Is there, if you could, is there any specific programming that you see being necessary, but not yet actively in place that you know about? What's a service that you think would be important that may not be there yet? I don't... I don't know if there's a specific service that isn't um, that isn't available yet. I would say there's just not enough of the ser- of the services that are um, that are there. 
So it's more about uh, availability, increasing what's already out there, but so that more folks can access it. Totally. That's, that's, that, that's definitely it because we have in Connecticut, we have um, programs that allow um, moms to have their children stay with them on, on site while they're in, while they're in treatment. So there are some there. We have um, re- residential programs um, for women, but I just think that we just need more residential, more of those types of programs for them. And then, there are very few in Connecticut where women who have young children or are pregnant can go and, and, and receive services. And a woman who is pregnant with a substance use disorder is in tremendous need of help and, and in a way that will meet all of her needs. Yes, that's that's true. We talk about access, and I don't want to miss uh, something that comes up often when we talk about accessing services, is where those services are becomes a major issue. Um, in, a, in an urban environment where there may be uh, better public transportation, um, you know, are those available options on a bus route? Uh, are they walkable from somebody's home? And we have to, for, we don't forget that with women, Getting to treatment may be a, a, an issue in itself because they may be on bus going to one side of town to drop their child off with a friend or relative, getting back on to go to their appointment, then getting going back to get the child. It can become, you know, even if it's a, a, a one hour appointment, that's a four or five hour uh, ordeal that we have to take into consideration. And in rural areas where there's a lack of transportation, um, those women are in. in it's very, very difficult. Yes, it is. Um, and we see that time and time again. Um, the fortunate thing about how SCRT we're able to um, to assist with transportation in terms of getting folks to treatment or getting them to come to our program if um, if need be or or transporting them if need be. Um, so, so we're fortunate in that regard, and we're also our programs are located on the bus lines but like you said it is it's hard when you have children that you have to get from from a to b or you have to leave suddenly from program to go to to go pick up your child from school daycare or if there's just a if there's just a child care issue in general and then especially if you rely on someone else outside of the bus to um to be able to bring you or if your guy or your partner is withholding transportation from you, I mean, there's it's, it, it is, and it's, it's just access, um, insurance, being able to pay for it, and then now you look at how everything is is done virtually, how how um, how this can have a also also have a negative impact on on women treatment, even though we are trying to be inclusive. Do they have a cell phone or a smartphone that's going to allow them to be able to access whatever platforms it is that they need to access to to, to get onto into their groups? Do they have internet service at home that's going to allow them to be able to access um, the group? And then on top of the internet service, is the speed fast enough to be able to allow them to get their treatment at the same time if their children are um, doing distance learning. So it's just. Those are significant. All of those issues. things, all of those things we just have to really, you know, 
really dive deeper into in terms of trying to come up with programming. And, and I appreciate you bringing that up because it paints a bigger picture of the, the difficulties with access. And it, it also, I hope people that are listening, you know, can, can understand that sometimes if you're working with uh, women in your program, just the fact that they were able to make it there today may be a huge, huge undertaking and a huge success that should be addressed. I, that I know it was difficult. I've heard you tell me how difficult it is. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Um, because that itself is a success because it's not an easy thing to do. Right. That um, should, that should totally be celebrated. From your perspective and from what you've seen, what are some of the differences between men and women in the recovery process or in treatment? Well, some of them I, I've said already. So just yeah. our, 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 if you look at body in general, right? Yeah. So we have less enzymes in our stomach. So, and we have more f- fat on our bodies. So drugs and uh, alcohol and drugs, when they, when they enter our bodies, they tend to stay in our systems longer than they do in a male system and at a higher concentration level. So our, our physical is um is a lot different than than men. Um, if you look at how how we how our mindset is in terms of um, being relational um, with others and that need for connectedness and not um, not having to grandstand in a, in a in a type of group. We want we'd like for things to be harmonious. Right. Um, we'd like to take care of others. Men want to. I don't want to say I don't want to I don't want to turn this into a male bashing thing because it's definitely I, I, not. It's, it's, def- it's, def- it's, it's, it's definitely not male bashing. But but men. Um, like, like you said, they're aggressive in a stance where they're trying to make it known what their power is that way right so that's the difference between um between men and women yeah, and um, it happens unconsciously in both the relational right. aspect for women it's not the the people go in there thinking i need to connect with these other individuals it's it's right. unconscious it's just it's, it's just it's innate. Mm-hmm. you know and totally. men are conditioned to be more overtly aggressive mm-hmm. yep then there you then you have um the piece of like i was saying earlier in terms of um, roles in society, right? So men tend to be the breadwinners of their family. So they don't have that, that concern of, I can go here and don't have to worry about, um, who's picking up the kids, that kind of thing. Whereas women, women tend to have, have that, um, have that as an issue more so than men. Um, let's see if I can say, Another difference, I would say cultural differences mm-hmm. as well. Um, and their their roles culturally where where women um and men fall in. So for s- some cultures it's it's acceptable for for the for um for for women. So like in our society, it's okay for women to integrate or be in the same group setting as as men. 
in other cultures is not, not even to even acknowledge that you even have a substance abuse issue or, um, or being in recovery as well. So that piece of it alone. And we talk about roles and culturally, and I think that we'll address this, you know, more when we talk about stigma, because this is really where that shows its rears Mm -hmm. its ugly head is when a male goes into the recovery process or enters treatment, there's almost a sense of, look, he's going to do this. He's going to do the right thing to better take care of his family and his responsibilities. But oftentimes women have so many unspoken responsibilities that you had mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that are, that people don't think about that when, when they're actually going to take time to take care of themselves, they're often looked at as selfish because they're putting their kids on somebody else or this or that. And it, uh, that inc- increases the stigma that we'll, we'll certainly mm-hmm. address more. But just entering treatment and what that looks like for somebody and what the feedback is for that um, is very different for men and women overall. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is. Uh, even with uh, gender-specific programming on the rise, are there gaps that you see um, that would that you'd still like to see filled? I would still like to see filled... Um the housing piece of it, the residential, the residential piece of it, more programming, um, residential programming for women to be able to access. Um, definitely more education as well in terms of what the, what the, what the addiction is, um, for, for the women and what it, just overall what it looks like and what it, what is, what it does to your body. Um, I would like to see, like we already, we've we've said this countless times, um, more gender specific programming, um, over just overall, um, in terms of IOP groups or, um, if you, if you have different groups based on different, um, therapy modalities, just, just being able to separate them out for, for women. Here's the, the multi-million dollar question for you. If you could put together the perfect program without having to deal with issues related to who's paying, regulatory concerns, agency requirements, who's going to pay to develop the program. But if you could just, on some perfect world, design a program that you say, this is what I'd like to see. What would it look like? You had mentioned uh, housing uh, yep. availability or assistance education i don't think we have enough time to talk about this (laughs) so my ideal program really would be a comprehensive an all comprehensive program with um with integrated services so we you would have um physicians on staff that um, are trained to, as a matter of fact, let's go back to staffing first. I, I want to I start there. My staff would be, would consist of all women, nothing against men, love you guys to, to, to death, but it would be all women. And in addition to that, it would be, there would be physicians there that to help deal with different women's health issues, right? Um, there would be a child care center there so that when women coming in for treatment um, or for any medical any medical needs, they would be able to have a, a child care um, site for the for their child to go to, um, and then 
the groups would be, let's see, how would I, um, how would I do the, so there's, there, there's multiple pathways of recovery. So there would be different types of groups for women. So there, whether it's, um, exercise, so it'd be, there'd be, there'd be a fitness component. There would be, um, a mindfulness component. Um, let's see what else would I have if folks are looking to 12 if 12 steps is what they're they're into then we would have a, have something like that but it would it would pretty much be um a one-stop shop where they would be um able to address all their needs and then i would add that i would have volunteers work there as well that are also learning the process um or are more interested in healthcare. So. Um, Maybe they might be um, student nursing students, um, doctoral students. There could also be in the program. Um, like I said, I got it. We don't know if we have enough time, but there there would be a, po- a, com- a a social service component there as well, right? So we could also um, have social work um, interns, but that social that social service component addressing those basic needs that um, that a female may have. Um, yeah, I think that's it. That's that's about it. I think that I covered. Every, I think I covered everything. Everything that you've described, in some level, there's a model that has existed for years and exists now. It's not as comprehensive as you described, but it has. Is in the '60s when they created uh, methadone clinics for opioid users, they became one-stop shop. They were only going to allow them to dispense methadone if they were providing all of these other wraparound services. And we know the the kind of the vitriol that methadone has received over the years. But then when they created the federally qualified healthcare system, it was mimicked on the, the that old methadone model, one-stop shop. And FQHCs these days do offer so many of those services, not necessarily specific to women, although they may have, well, that's the, go to the women's group. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's yeah. other things they need to do. But what you're describing, you know, is certainly possible. It's not reinventing the wheel. The model exists and is successful, Mm -hmm. but we have to build on it. And I Mm -hmm. think that that's very heartening for someone like me that sees a lot of different treatment systems and things that there is a model that we can use. Let's just add to it and put in the things that that don't exist. Um, It makes it seem like it's a real possibility that that could happen. And let's hope that somebody has a lot of capital and <laughs> and can invest it and do that because right. we know it works. Um, federally qualified healthcare systems and one-stop shops. I'm more likely to follow up with a psychiatrist if that's recommended at the same building where I get my medical, my dental, mm-hmm. my counseling, because I'm comfortable there. And rather than just walking into a psychiatrist appointment without knowing my provider, whether it's a social worker, a doctor, whoever my case manager, can walk me into that uh, psychiatrist's office and introduce me well before my appointment so I can see the layout of it. I can feel comfortable with that individual. I, I love the model, Diane. I think we just need to, to build on what we have. Now, how awesome would it be to have a place where you could go to, um, go right in the door, um, same, day, same day service, right? Yep go through detox, then go through how 28, 90 day, however long you need to be and transition you all the way through 
and still be able to deal with all those other needs that you have at the same time. And be able like, to revi- reside with your children. Yes. Be and able to reside, know that yeah. when you're doing your thing, that they're on site and safe, that you can see them at any time. Right. So that worry is taken away. Just to allay that concern, I think would be a huge, huge mm-hmm. improvement on what we have. And it, it, it's expensive, but it's not unrealistic. It, 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 you're, you're right. And then also, I mean, I'm just thinking of everything, all the possibilities. Then being able to offer the family therapy, right, have that mm-hmm. component as well so that your your kids and you are are just are building relationships back together again and dealing with those those issues that um that you, that she's been going through as a, as a as a whole unit well hopefully as the system and, and as uh, we recognize and work harder to meet the needs of our individuals where they are at um, and there's some hurdles there even to get to that point, I think. Uh, right. Meet the individuals where they're at, that we can start building some of these services. Mm-hmm. Um, if any, I appreciate your time today. And if anybody has feedback, questions, or wants more information about your program, about what's going on uh, with women in recovery, is there a way that they can reach you? Sure. Um, you can go um, to, you can, um, I can be emailed at grant. T at crtct.org, or you can give me a phone call at 860-748-7605. That um, is my cell phone. Um, And then you can also visit our behavioral health um, services page on www.crtct.org. Thanks, Stacia. I really appreciate your time, and we'll talk again next week. All righty. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Tanisha Grant for joining us and also express our gratitude to the community renewal team for allowing her to take the time to talk to us. Join us next time for the second in our three-part series on the unique needs of women in recovery when we discuss the impact of trauma on substance use and co-occurring disorders in recovery. We here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast application. Until next time, everybody.